You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast. www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. Super Tuesday isn't gonna throw me cause my vote is blue. Yeah, no matter who. And I'm hoping that your vote is too. Sorry about that, everybody. But Super Trooper has been stuck in my head all day because it's Super Tuesday. Super Tuesday, Super Trooper, Super Tuesday, Super Trooper. Here's a fun fact. Super Trooper was released on Monday, November 3rd, 1980, almost 40 years ago. And here's the unfun follow-up fact. The very next day, Tuesday, November 4th, 1980, Ronald Reagan was elected president of the United States in a landslide, a landslide that brought us supply-side economics, also known as voodoo economics, now best understood as a brain-eating monster that cannot be killed. A zombie idea is a belief or doctrine that has repeatedly been proved false but refuses to die, writes New York Times columnist Paul Krugman. Instead, it just keeps shambling along eating people's brains. And the zombiest of zombie ideas out there plague, says Krugman, the Republican Party. They have, he writes, taken over the Republican Party. Zombies seem to prefer Republican brains, which must be delicious, considering the effort it has to take to find them. And the worst zombie idea shambling around out there refusing to die? Krugman writes about it at length in his new book, Arguing with Zombies, Economics, Politics, and the Fight for a Better Future. It's the idea that, well... It might have been an idea back in 1980, but it's been disproven so many times that we really should be calling it a lie by now. But anyway, the worst zombie idea out there, cutting taxes for the wealthy reduces federal deficits and benefits not just the rich, but also the middle class, the working class, and the poor. Supply-side economics, which basically amounts to supplying more money to the people who already have almost all of it, benefits everybody, this lie goes. Because when the rich spend money, it winds up trickling down. It leaks out of the people on the top and drips down on the people at the bottom. Tinkle, tinkle. Because when a rich person buys a yacht, somebody has to clean it for minimum wage with no health benefits and no sick leave. But in reality, that's not what happens. In reality, the rich sock more money away than they spend. They don't create jobs. They buy more stocks, make more money, buy more politicians, and get a fresh round of tax cuts. If you've ever wondered why boomers made it out of college without student loan debt and found houses to buy while most of you out there listening left college in debt up to your eyeballs and can't even find an apartment to rent, this zombie lie is to blame. Federal investment in higher education and housing slashed during the Reagan administration in favor of tax cuts for the wealthy. And then that happened again during the first Bush administration and then again during the next Bush administration and then again at the start of the Trump administration. We aren't going to be able to kill this zombie just by electing a Democratic president and we aren't going to be able to kill this zombie just by giving Democrats control of the Senate and House. The Republican Party as we know it, the party of zombies and zombie ideas and all those delicious, hard-to-find truffle brains, the zombie party needs to have a stake driven through its heart if it can be found. All right, coming up on today's show, on the micro edition of the Savage Lovecast, tons of your cues and lots of my A's. 
And on the Magnum edition of the Savage Lovecast that you can subscribe to at savagelovecast.com, twice as much show, more calls, more guests, and no ads. And in the Magnum this week, I chat with comedian Cameron Esposito about growing up very Catholic and very queer in the very straight suburbs. It's the subject of her terrific new book, Save Yourself. All that coming up on today's show. Hey, Dan. I'm a gay guy in my mid-20s. I had a very strange experience in a bathhouse that's got me wondering what was going on. So I hooked up with this guy, and about 30 seconds after he started fucking me, he whispered into my ear and asked me what my name was. Which, at that particular moment, and with the way he asked, it seemed very awkward. I was a bit weirded out, but I made something up and told him my name was John, which it isn't. So he kept going, and while he continued to pound me, he started saying things like, Oh, John, this is so amazing, John. I've never felt this way before, John. And I mean, I'm pretty confident about my butthole, but I don't really think it has the magical power to make someone fall in love with me after two minutes of anonymous bathhouse sex. At this point, I was starting to feel really funny about the whole encounter, but he did have the biggest dick I've ever seen, and I guess my lizard brain just wasn't ready to give up on it yet. (laughs) But it got weirder. He asked me if I was from the area, and I just said sort of. And then he started saying, oh, John, this is the best I've ever felt. You're so amazing. Will you promise me we'll meet again soon? Okay, I should have stopped everything at this point, but I just pretended I didn't hear that last part and let the sex go on for way longer than it should have. I think I was somewhat afraid of what would happen if I told this guy no. So I just kind of let him finish and made it clear that I wasn't interested in any pillow talk. And after several very awkward minutes, that was that. So my question for you is, Was this guy trying to manipulate me? Is this a kind of predatory strategy to somehow ultimately get money out of me? Or am I being paranoid? Was this just a guy who really likes to get romantic with his bathhouse hookups? Okay, so the guy with his enormous dick in your ass wanted to know your name. He didn't ask for your first name, last name, and social security number or the name of your first pet, your mom's maiden name, the city where you were born. He just wanted to know and say, it seems, your name, the name of the guy whose ass he was in. And he also wanted to know if you were a local. And those are two things a person might reasonably ask, the person who's asked their fucking, if they kind of liked that person, if they felt that kind of chemical click. And that feeling, that chemical click, isn't always mutual. He could really, in that moment, have felt this strong attraction or pull toward you or push into you. And the feeling, that feeling wasn't mutual. You wanted his big dick in your ass. You wanted the sensations of being pounded. But you didn't want to connect on the level that this guy wanted to connect. I really think you're being paranoid and and a little unfair. There are couples out there. I have known gay, stable, long-term, sometimes married, even occasionally monogamous gay couples that met in bathhouses, that met in sex clubs, that met in 
dungeons. It is possible for two people to meet in that sort of environment and just that click to happen, that sort of chemical sense that this is the person I want to be with and need to be with and I want you – know, I feel this real strong attraction toward that person. For that feeling to be mutual and for a relationship to grow out of that sleazy first meeting. But that is impossible for a relationship to grow out of that first sleazy meeting unless someone asks someone else's name or asks if someone else is local or asks if maybe you want to swap phone numbers and meet up again sometime, maybe not in the bathhouse. You can meet up sometime someplace for free. I don't think anything he was doing was unreasonable. I think he kind of liked you. And the fact that you're so freaked out by kind of maybe being liked by someone that you're hooking up with in a sleazy environment is evidence of one or two possibilities that you don't want to be liked or that you just don't want to be liked by someone you meet in that environment, that you are disqualifying people that you meet in the bathhouse from consideration as romantic prospects, maybe because you're already partnered romantically and you're seeking other shit in the bathhouse or other stuff, other dick in the bathhouse and no romantic connections. You're not interested in a romantic connection. Or you're doing that thing that sometimes people do, which I think is really shitty, and saying, well, this person, by dint of being in this sleazy, terrible place where I also am with my pants around my ankles and my ass in the air, is obviously not a good and decent person, no one I would want to date. Can you see the problem with that logic? And I'm not saying that's your reasoning here. But that is often when you dig down with somebody who says, well, you know, I met this guy. The sex was great. But, you know, it was a bath. He was in a bathhouse. Well, you were in a bathhouse too. So if it's that and I don't think it's that and I hope it's not that, I would hope you would interrogate that thought, that impulse, disqualifying guys for that reason because it's shitty. As for the rest of it, but if it's because you have a romantic partner, not interested in romantic partners, I don't think anything he did should make you worried that your bunny's going to get boiled or that he's going to show up on your porch or in your office looking for your ass again. He just wanted to know your name. I think he kind of liked you. And there's nothing wrong with liking someone that your dick is inside. Hi, Dan. This is a young straight woman from the Southwest. And I am searching for Valentine's Day gifts for my husband. So we've been moving toward anal both on me and him. And I was wanting to get us a, a dildo to do that for. Um, and I was not sure. So I found a good one, but I'm on a budget. And so I would be presumably using it on him and he would be using it on me. So is it just super gross sharing a dildo? Is that disgusting? And I don't know it. If we used a condom on top of that, would that be okay? Would just washing it in between using it on each other feel right, washing it with soap and water? Well, obviously it's a problem if you go from his ass to your twat with a dildo without putting a condom on it, taking the condom off, and putting another condom on it before switching people's orifices. That's obvious. You don't necessarily have to use condoms though. If you can wash the dildo in between uses or you go only from your twat to his ass so long as you don't have a sexually transmitted infection. If you're fluid bonded, if you guys are tested, that's not a problem going from your twat to his ass. But going from his ass to your twat and potentially introducing fecal bacteria into your vaginal canal, a huge problem. But you don't have to necessarily use a condom on a dildo that you use on his ass and then clean and use on your twat. Get a silicone or glass or steel 
dildo, wash it thoroughly between uses. Make sure the dildo you have doesn't have a porous surface. That's why you want silicone glass, steel, marble. A silicone dildo you can toss in the dishwasher and really kind of boil it between uses and you will be fine. You just have to be – if it's going to be a shared insertion toy, you just have to be fastidious about cleaning it between uses. And it sounds like you're motivated enough to do that. Hey, Dan. um, I just had a question about my partner and I. Every time that we have sex, he closes his eyes and he never opens them. So I just feel like it's kind of weird and feel like we don't have kind of this intimate connection. So I'm just wondering, like, is there a way that I could ask him to open his eyes or I don't know if it's like a shame thing that he can't connect with me that way or I'm I'm just not understanding why he closes his eyes or makes me feel like I have to close my eyes too and I don't know it's just it's a weird thing and I've never had to deal with that with another partner so how do I kind of address that with him It turns out there is a way to ask your boyfriend to open his eyes during sex but of course this is specialized knowledge that only those of us who do sex research or write about sex and have been writing about sex for a very long time are aware of. And that's asking your boyfriend to open his eyes during sex. If he is your partner and your sex partner, presumably this isn't some casual relationship. Presumably you guys can talk about sex and talk about things, things that also aren't sex. You can talk about the coronavirus. You can talk about the Super Bowl. You can talk about the idiot in the White House. You can also say, hey, I've noticed that during sex, actually since we started having sex, your eyes are always closed and I really enjoy eye contact during sex. I'd like you to look into my eyes and then see what he has to say. It may not be conscious. He's not closing his eyes and imagining that you were a guy, presumably. Presumably he is into straight sex, into you. He's just closing his eyes for reasons. I don't know what those reasons are. Don't assume that they're shame-based. It could just be sensation that he's concentrating on how it all feels and it makes him feel more present in his body and allows him to enjoy you and your body more. And he enjoys the the, the tactile and the touch and the friction more and, and feels more sort of connected when his eyes are closed. Or it could just be a habit and a habit you can help him break by not being too self-conscious about really putting it out there. There is something that you need during sex, which is to look into his eyes and to be looked at. Tell him. Tell him that is a need of yours that you expect him as your sex partner to meet. And then don't be a big baby if you have to gently remind him. If during sex you need to ask him to look at you, to open his eyes so you can see into his eyes, you can make it part of your sexy connection and part of your dirty talk. You know, there are couples out there where one person enjoys dirty talk and the other doesn't enjoy dirty talk. And the one who enjoys dirty talk is often in the position of having to prompt the person who dirty talk doesn't necessarily come naturally to, to engage with them verbally. Well, this may be your role in your relationship where you have to prompt him to engage with you visually, to look at you, to open his eyes so you can look into his eyes. It's only a problem in those sort of dirty talk discordant relationships when the person who dirty talk comes naturally to resents their partner, that they constantly have to remind their partner. That makes it a problem. So long as you don't resent your partner, if you have to gently prod him 
during sex to open his eyes until you break him of that habit. And that may take a long time or it may never happen. He may always need that reminder. But if you make it a part of your sex and you make it a positive, something joyful and fun in a way that you engage during sex where you have to tell him to look at you, open your eyes, then it's not going to be a problem in your sex life. And you will get what you want, which is to be seen. Hi, Dan. I'm a mom of a wonderful 14-year-old who has recently come out to his family as trans. We are very supportive of his new gender identity um, and are very lucky that we live in a wonderful community. He has a lot of support here, friends at school who are trans um, and access to good mental health care and um, and medical care. And it's it's been a really good experience. But there's one area that we are a little concerned about or I'm a little concerned about. Um, he admitted to me that um, he isn't really sure that he is, has much of a sexual identity. He says he thinks he's bi, but he doesn't report having a lot of sexual thoughts, feelings, fantasies. He reports not having ever had an orgasm um, and, and says he doesn't masturbate. You know, obviously, he doesn't want to do those things. I don't want to put pressure on him to do those things. But especially with him being a female to male transition, I just worry that he has internalized some of the bad ideas about about female sexuality. I want him to have access to those positive physical feelings um, and that relief, that sense of release, um, especially since I know he's experiencing dysphoria. I, I just want him to feel good in his body. So I guess what I'm asking is I, I did offer to buy him toys or or devices or things that might help him have sexual experiences that are a little bit more biologically male. Um, he wasn't really interested in that. And so I guess what I'm asking is, should I just back off and wait and just let him know I'm open to helping him out with stuff like that? Or should I push it more? What's your advice for us? We just want him to be happy and healthy. Your son is dealing with a lot right now. Your son is transitioning, just came out to you as a man, uh, a boy. As for the rest of it, it sounds like your son is able to talk to you about all sorts of issues, not just his gender identity, but also sexuality, his sexual orientation and identity. So the lines of communication are open. And I think your job right now is to listen, not to throw sex toys at your son, who could very well also be asexual or gray sexual or minimally sexual, have a very low libido, in addition to being trans. And he's got a lot on his plate right now with the gender identity thing. If he isn't ready or doesn't want to or is shut down sexually at the moment, that may be buying him some time and giving him some space. And, you know, there are a lot of kids out there who feel awkward about sex, who feel awkward about desire, who will tell their parents they don't masturbate, who will tell their parents that they're not really attracted to anyone right now. And it is sometimes a big fat lie because the kid is uncomfortable talking about sex and desire and arousal as most kids are, trans or otherwise, with mom and dad. So just because he told you this doesn't necessarily mean it's true. I don't think you need to go in there and accuse him of lying. In fact, I think your impulse to back way the fuck off is the right impulse. Make sure he has access to trans-positive and trans-inclusive sex education materials. Make sure he's aware of asexuality.org, the Asexuality Visibility Network, in addition to all sorts of other information about sex and sexuality that is for people who are sexual, not asexual. And then let him work through this 
on his own with the awareness that's already established that if he has a question or he has a concern that he can come to you. But you shouldn't be coming to him right now about whether or not he's coming. Back off. Hi, Dan. I am a relatively new twin mom from Oregon. And I just had a quick question for you. When I was pregnant with my twins, my husband was not at all interested in sex with me. He was very much focused on how much it would hurt the babies, even when our OB said that that is not a thing at all, no matter how big you are. And now my twins are over nine months old and he's still not interested. And we just had a recent discussion about what could help get him off and how I could get him interested. He shared with me that he had a kink that he had never shared before and he would not tell me what that was. And I don't really know where to go from here. We have a pretty open conversation regularly about our sex life and the lack thereof, but he just refused to talk to me about his kink. And I just thought you might have some insight on how how I might be able to help or how we can get help from someone else. I recently answered a letter in Savage Love, the column from a woman who was dating a guy, had a new partner, who told her he couldn't sleep with her because he had a kink, but couldn't tell her what that kink was and wasn't interested in or capable of being intimate or getting aroused in the absence of whatever that kink was that he wouldn't tell her about. And I said to her, as a general rule, a person really shouldn't mention the fact that they have a kink or fetish to a new partner, and I would add now, or an established long-term partner that maybe they just had twins with, unless you're ready to share what that kink is. You don't have to be ready to act on it. Lots of people have fetishes and or kinks that they enjoy as fantasy only or are ready to share but want to take the doing of a little bit slower. But telling someone you have a kink or fetish that's all-consuming, so all-consuming in the case of this reader that her partner couldn't even be sexual unless it was a part of the action and then refusing to name the kink fetish, well, I said to this reader, that's not just bullshit. It's disqualifying assholery and some truly next-level nagging. And I told her not to walk away from this guy, but to run. That advice I can't give as easily to you or as glibly to you because this is your husband and you guys just had twins together and you are new parents and these twins are nine months old and parenting one child is a lot of work, hard for one person to do solo. Parenting two children, having infants as one person, yeah, that presents a degree of difficulty that for one person on her own is a real challenge. So obviously you didn't ask me if you should leave your husband, but it did occur to me that your husband's being a towering asshole. And I'm sure I speak for everyone when I say something is going on. He wasn't interested in having sex with you while you were pregnant. He hasn't been interested in having sex with you nine months later after the pregnancy, not interested in having sex with you. The excuse when you were pregnant was he didn't want to injure the children, which as your OBGYN pointed out, Not a thing he needed to concern himself with. And the issue now, well, I don't know what it is and you don't know what it is. And I don't know why he threw this undefined kink out there that he wouldn't name. But obviously your husband is going through something, struggling with something that he is afraid to share with you or not ready to share with you. And you're just going to have to, well, not wait forever. You're really going to have to press him on this. I also got a letter recently from a reader whose partner didn't seem to be interested in touching her anymore after she got pregnant and had been a friends with benefits arrangement, not a marriage. 
And the dude moved in and was going to be there for her to parent, but he didn't want to fuck her anymore and she couldn't understand why. And a lot of the commenters theorized, hypothesized, that he wasn't into becoming a dad. And the fact that she had gotten pregnant upset him and sort of extinguished his desire for her. Is that what's going on here? I can only speculate. Did your husband want to have kids? Was he acquiescing to your desire to become a parent and going along with it and hoping maybe he would catch parenting fever too and it just didn't take and there's some resentment there? And I'm not saying that that has to lead to the end of the relationship or the end of your marriage, but it's going to have to be processed and worked through for you guys to reconnect if that's what's going on. The only person who knows what's actually going on between your husband's legs, between your husband's ears is your husband. And not only isn't he giving you any good reasons for not fucking you while you were pregnant, not fucking you nine months later, he's throwing up some bullshit. He's throwing up some flack and smoke and talking about a kink and then not letting you know what it is. And so I would encourage you, in addition to the relay race that is parenting, particularly when it comes to twins, to find some time to get to a couple's counselor and talk this out and pry your husband open because you deserve answers. Unfortunately, I don't have the answer for you. The only person who has the answer is your husband and he's not being forthcoming and you're going to have to risk pressing him. Hi, Dan. I need your advice or maybe one of your readers could give me some advice on what to do. A few years ago, I divorced my first husband and we had a young daughter who was a toddler at the time. Uh, we share custody and that's all fine. That's not the issue. After we separated, I reconnected with an old friend who's clearly the love of my life and we started dating a year later we moved in together uh we've since bought a house and we're raising my daughter together during our time with her we've been really really happy we share similar goals values parenting strategies the whole nine yards um and when we whenever we have disagreed we've always been able to sort things out in a rational manner which i think is really important in a relationship uh, when we first got together i was pretty clear that i didn't want another child. I had a really difficult pregnancy and delivery and I feel like I'm a really great mother to one kid. I don't really know how a second child would fit into our life. Uh, but I did say I was open to discussing it down the road. Uh, I was in my mid-30s when we got together. I'm getting toward my late 30s now. So we didn't totally shut the door on the issue. The topics come up periodically where we've discussed it, but we've never come to any real firm conclusions until yesterday when he brought up his feelings that he'd like to have another baby with me and he wants to father his own child. Uh, he's an excellent stepdad and I, I know we could make it work, but I know deep down that I don't want to and I think I would be, end up being really unhappy as a result. I made this all very clear to him and, and he did start the discussion by telling me that he's not going anywhere and if the answer is no, he will accept it as an answer and he'll move on. I, I can tell he's extremely sad about it though and I'm feeling really, really guilty about my decision uh, and I've been reading other articles about the topic and the advice is, is pretty scary and it leads me to believe that these kinds of situations end in resentment and the relationship ending and I'm terrified that that could happen to us. I need to hear from 
somebody who's going to tell me that that's not always the case. Please, somebody give me some hope. Thanks for your help. It doesn't just sound like the answer is no. It sounds like the answer always was no, that you didn't want to do this. Sound pretty clear and emphatic that you had a difficult pregnancy, that you don't want a parent more than one child. And so at the beginning of this relationship with this man that you love, who is such a wonderful father, not stepfather, father to your child, you already knew that this wasn't something that you were most likely going to change your mind on. So this is one of those instances where I wish I had a time machine that I could blast out to my listeners and you could jump in it and go back four years and make it clear then that you weren't open to discussing this, you weren't kicking the can down the road, that it was no. And your partner, if he wanted to stay with you, could have gotten on with the business of grieving this. And you're going to have to let him grieve this. He would like to have a biological child of his own. He would like to have that child with you. You are not interested in having more children. And so the answer is no. Being with you and continuing to be the parent of this child, being the step-parent to your child, the price of admission he'll have to pay for that is to let go of this, to let go of his desire, his dream to have his own biological child. Is that a price of admission that he's willing to pay? Will that lead to resentment? Well, you know, when I talk about the price of admission, I talk about how you're not allowed to complain about the price of admission after you've paid it. Either pay it and move past it and you don't bitch about the price you've paid all the time because then you haven't paid it really. But this is a bigger thing than just the price of admission is, you know, I have to pick up the socks or the price of admission is we have to live in this suburb, not downtown where I'd rather live. This is from an existential sort of perspective. This is huge. The, the, this desire, a thwarted desire to have your own biological child, that is an enormous price of admission and he is going to have big feelings about paying it. You're going to have to let him work through those feelings and love him through that process as he works through those feelings, as he grieves it. Will the resentment that he will feel that will be part of the process for him, part of the grieving process for him and that will always be present. Will that poison your relationship? Will it lead to the end of your relationship? Possibly there are no guarantees. But it's my experience and I've observed that sometimes you have to let someone have their resentment of you, that this is something that will always bother and upset your partner about you and there's this desire to root that out, to, to make your partner let go of it, to get your partner to admit that they don't resent you, to force them to pretend that they don't resent you for this rather than allowing that to be a stone in their shoe or stone in the shoe of their relationship where there's always going to be this sense on their part that being with you involves some degree of loss and there are feelings attendant to that loss, including on some level resentment. He shouldn't express that to you or to you only. He should talk about that with friends. He should talk about that with a counselor. He needs to work through it. If indeed this is a price of admission that he is willing to pay to be with you, he has to take responsibility for those feelings, not just vent them at you and expect you to deal with them or bear up under the weight of them all by yourself. If he chooses to stay, then he is choosing to let go of this dream. There will be times when those feelings well up in him and at those times he may want to go talk to a counselor. He may want to go vent to a friend. But also you're going to have to roll with those at times. You're going to have to, in a sense, honor 
those feelings because they're symbolic of the sacrifice that he made, the price of admission that he paid to be with you in a kind of bank shot, reverse image, photo negative sense. It's an affirmation of your relationship and how much you mean to him that he was willing to make this sacrifice to be with you. He has to learn to live with that resentment in a way where he's not taking it out on you and you have to learn to honor it and not resent him in return for those lingering feelings of resentment that he may always harbor. Hey, Dan. I'm a 37-year-old straight lady living up here, and I'm having a bit of a conflict with my mom around uh, having children. So I'm 37, and my time to sort of naturally have a child through biology is winding away. Uh, and I'm not particularly interested in having children. It's a decision I've come to over a long time. There are many reasons for it. Some are based on environmental concerns. Some are based on the fact that I'm really, really happy with my life as it is. I have a wonderful boyfriend of four years and we're incredibly happy. We love having freedom to do what we want and all the additional income we have that we're not spending on a kid. And while we've talked about, you know, potentially adopting a child in the future, um, I really feel like having a, a biological child of my own is just not something that's super important to me. And then the only person who seems to have a, a problem with this is my mother. Um, my mom and I have a sort of complicated, intense relationship. I was an only child and my parents split up when I was little. And while my father was around, I lived with my mom. And so we're very, very close. And in a lot of ways became more like roommates or like it's a, it's a closer relationship I feel than most people have with a parent. And I've had to take on, especially as she's gotten older, more of a sort of partner spouse role in terms of the tasks that I have to do for her and the sort of emotional labor of keeping her upright and functional. She suffers from depression and has sort of ups and downs and, you know, has been pretty good in my life about not putting pressure on me to do things to make her happy. But this is the one area where she's been frankly kind of awful to deal with. I've tried to have conversations with her about this before and every time it just devolves into her crying and me having to comfort her and I just feel like there's no room for my feelings or my perspective and the last time we talked about it she looked at me and said, you know, I can, I guess I'll get over it, but I'll never forgive you for making this decision, which just seems incredibly melodramatic, but it's awful to deal with. And of late, I think I've kind of solidified in my decision that I'm definitely not going to have a biological baby of my own. And I want to tell her because I don't want to leave her on tender hooks of sort of waiting because literally every time I see her, there's some anxious part of the conversation where she's like, you know, have you and, you know, your boyfriend made a decision? And I'm like, no, because for a long time we hadn't, but now we kind of have, and I feel like I'm lying and I want to be honest, but honestly, I'm scared to have that conversation because she just gets so emotional and over the top and it's really stressful and scary. So yeah, if I, I don't know if you or maybe some of your listeners have had a similar experience about having this conversation, it would just be nice not to have to have this tension between us constantly where I just, she makes me feel like I'm failing her, which is really, really frustrating. You say this is awful to deal with your mother's dramatic bullshit about your decision and your decision alone on whether to have kids. So stop dealing with it. 
establish a very clear boundary. Tell your mother that you have made a decision and it is final. As far as she knows, as far as she needs to know, that door is closed. Close the door with mom. You are not having children. You are not having your own biological children. You are never having children. Just tell her you are never having children. Don't give her that little crack that she can drive a wedge into where you're still considering her. Maybe you'll have children later. Maybe you'll think about adopting or maybe you'll change your mind. No, you have come to a conclusion. You have made a decision and this is not happening. And if your mom is going to be sad about it and your mom is going to cry or try to guilt you or make you feel terrible, get off the phone, get up and leave the room Give her one afternoon to vent, to cry, to sob, and then tell her you're not going to entertain her feelings about this anymore. That if she needs to talk about it with someone, it's going to have to be someone else. She can talk to a therapist. She can talk to a counselor. She can find friends whose kids made the same decision not to have children and bemoan her fate with them. But you are not there for this conversation. You are not going to show up for this conversation. Again, I think it would be generous for you to let her have one day to really have her shit fit, to really feel sad and cry it out with you. But then a boundary. When it comes up, if she brings it up, when it comes up, you say, Mom, this isn't a conversation that we're having anymore. This is a decision I made and it is final and it is very disrespectful of me and my autonomy for you to continue to pressure me like this. And then get up and leave or hang up Get off the phone. Tell mom you'll talk to her later about something else. And she will learn in time that if she wants you in her life, if she doesn't want every visit or every phone call to be truncated, to not go there. And eventually she'll get it through her skull that she has to grieve it and get over it. But you're going to have to be clear with her. Close the door. Decision made. Mom informed of that decision. Mom given one day to cry, and then she has to cry to somebody else, not you. We're going to take a quick break from your calls to speak with a frequent Savage Lovecast guest and guest expert, Cameron Esposito, stand-up comedian, podcaster. You should check out her long-form query podcast where she does interviews with notable queer people. Uh, Also a writer. Hey, Cameron, how are you? Dan, I'm great. Yeah, I'm really great. I'm drinking some coffee to like really get in the zone to be a sex expert for you. <laughs> you have a brand new book coming out called Save Yourself. Uh, I read it last night. It's really terrific. It's kind of about your winding path from little gay kid to big K adult, which includes eating disorders, dating the captain of the football team. And we're going to talk more about him in a minute uh, and being a Republican. Yes. Uh, and and the, the book is really kind of addressed to other queer people who are struggling. Yeah, that's right. And I mean, it also has, I mean, I particularly feel happy about the title because it has a dual meaning. You know, I was a super Catholic. I was raised very Catholic, like I know you were. And so I was saving myself Mm -hmm. for marriage, which really wasn't that difficult since I did not want to have sex with my boyfriend um, or any of the boyfriends that I had. Um, But also it's about a decision, you know, for me as a person who was raised in a strict conservative faith community to pull myself up out of that and – I found stand-up and that worked for me as a way to connect with other people. And now I'm um, – at this point in my life, in my 30s, I'm really working to connect without stand-up actually. So, so you faced a lot of the kinds of challenges early in life as a child 
that might prompt someone to deploy humor to deflect attention. <laughs> That's right. Can you run us through your, <laughs> your childhood aesthetic, which is a very hilarious part, early part of the book? Yeah, I mean, that's exactly right. I have a photograph. This is something I, I started doing um, in writing this book. I have a photograph of myself, multiple photos, photographs of myself as a kid because I was I was so ashamed of myself. But now I look at those photographs and I'm like, if I met this kid, I would love her. I had a bowl cut. I had glasses, braces. I also wore an eye patch for eight years of my childhood because I had crossed eyes. And I was a little bit like, maybe I was a little bit chubby, not like, um, just, just a, a sausagey looking person with a, you know, with a coconuts hairdo and a full eye patch <laughs> just walking through the world you know you have to be you have to be fucking funny yeah because you're going to draw attention and then what are you going to do with that attention and your coping mechanism as a child was to be hilarious and that has served you well in adulthood uh, and, and it's your profession now and it's just it's always so funny to see because you know you move through the world and you see kids who have challenges and and you ache for them, but sometimes those challenges really make that kid and, and shape that kid's adult life. And I think that's one of the messages of your book. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as queer folks, it is really important that we are able to laugh at ourselves in our situation while also working to change our situation. You know, it's not just about chuckling through uh, the fires of hell, but it really is about, you know, being able to take some of the power out of the sting. You know, I mean, otherwise it's a survival mm -hmm. mechanism. I really, I really think that humor for me is an, is an overdeveloped coping skill. I feel so stoked that I get paid to tell people jokes. And I also am working, you know, like I said, um, a minute ago to try to be more genuine offstage with friends, because what I realized about myself is that this, this skill was working so well for me that I didn't necessarily have to tell people the truth. Because I had this great outlet where I could talk about the things that were bothering me and sort of take the sting out of them. But then, you know, like all coping skills, there's a finite use. Um, and so I mm -hmm. feel like I feel so glad that I have that in me. And I'm also really excited to see what happens as I work to be more connected to people offstage. So when you did come out or when you were cornered and sort of forced out uh, by your parents – they didn't react well. And it reads, you know, I found myself, you know, double checking the dates because it reads more like something from the 1960s or 70s, the reaction that your family had and really how they kind of, or your parents attempted to isolate you, force you to go to a different college, break up with your girlfriend, prevent you from seeing your girlfriend. It reads more like something from the 50s or 60s than the 2000s. How, you know, there's so many people out there who have this belief now that just like your standard issue off the shelf gay guy or lesbian has a much easier time of it, uh, particularly after, you know, the 90s, uh, than than most people, than most other queers. And your experience just explodes that. What you went through was so traumatic. Yeah, Dan, I, you know, I really, well, first of all, I, I love, you know, things like the It Gets Better project. I love the idea, you know, that we get to say to ourselves as a community that um, it has gotten better for us, that we are not always victimized the same way that we, we have been in the past as a community. But I think for people from mm -hmm. specific faith backgrounds um, or from any other type of conservatism, I think the story in this book is still happening today. And 
if the narrative, you know, culturally the narrative now is that like, like you're saying that it's pretty chill, like that parents are saying, yeah, no problem. Uh, like also this is what's for dinner. And I just think that leaves behind the young people and adults that are still really struggling with this. And so many of them are people from a faith community. Yeah, it is remarkable. The letters I sometimes get from, you know, parents whose 12 or 13 year old kids are coming out to them and they write me not in a panic. They write me not, of course, looking for advice about how to talk their 13 year old out of being gay, but they write me because they want to be the best parents to a queer kid that they can possibly be. And that is something new under the sun. Yes. That was not the reaction people had when their 12 or 13 year olds, you know, appeared to be gay or they suspected they might be gay decades ago. But there are still people who have the sorts of experiences that you had. And it's part of what drives the, I think what's so funny about the book or, you know, the little information you're given about sex or the non-information you're given about sex uh, and how that hampers your understanding of yourself. But but there is this thing with queers where we tell these stories of our, you know, our young lives when we were first coming to the realization, then coming out. And what's so intensely felt about those years is we're behind enemy lines to spies with covers so deep we don't even know who we are right and i sometimes think as grown-up queer people a lot of us are sensation seekers because we want to recreate or re-experience the intensity of that stage of our lives not to like live as perpetual adolescence but to really live and and live full throttle because there was that time in our lives where we we did like set us on our course yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, I also talk about in the book that I developed this skill of sort of being able to split myself, you know, because I was I was in the I was closeted and dating someone because I was at a faith-based university where I really couldn't come out. And so I sort of let people believe that these men that I was casually seeing were the people I was spending my time with. Um, and that skill of being able to like hide who you are is part of what I'm talking about now where when, you know, I got good at keeping the truth about my feelings from other people because of the context that I was living in when I came out. And when you get good at that, mm -hmm. like that's actually not <laughs> like, like that's not that's not great. You know, I, I feel like I. I got very good at seeing what people wanted from me and then providing them that version of myself. And I think that that's something that as queer people, it is really exciting. You know, it's exciting to have like a secret private life. It's exciting to tell this person this version of who you are and this person a different version. And um, I'm working on merging myself back together because it, it that fractured way of being, it didn't just go away from me. Well, I, I sometimes, you know, I, I can see how that fractured way of being could be a problem in someone's life if you're never if you never integrate those different versions of yourself. I found it really kind of weirdly empowering to know that perception, you know, what I told someone and, and who they believed I was was so important that that perception was reality. I think that's why so many queer people are good at comedy, drama, theater, masks because we were putting masks on and off uh, at a very important stage of our lives, and we realized that reality is something that you can create yeah and not just something you're handed and but that's a double-edged sword really. well i think that the the you know the edge of that sword is when it's paired with shame so the positive side of that is you're totally right i can go out on stage and i have fun performing or i can you know be in a meeting and um i am i can really turn it on like i can turn it 
I can turn it on, um, which is awesome. It's an awesome adaptive skill. Um, but when it is – when that skill comes from shame – and I, I, I really do want to bring it back to – you know, the Catholic Church still operates in in a way where um, it mm-hmm. leaves leaves adults who have had normative experiences with massive amounts of shame. It's not just me, um, a 38-year-old person who is queer. It's also like the – you know, my contemporary who has had an abortion, you know, a woman who's my same age or, you know, older or younger who's had an abortion and was raised in a certain way where like that is so shameful that even if she feels fine about that politically, it's something that she doesn't talk about. And so therefore, like that part of her life is sort of erased as she's going through the world. And just the that is a trauma, you know, to erase something from your life is is a trauma. Um, and I think that's that's the part that doesn't feel great. The awesome part about that, like you're saying, is that you know I can be different people in different places, and I can um, be a serious and like nerdy person off stage, and like a cool guy wearing motorcycle jackets on stage. And I love that part of it. But it's two. It's two things. There are two parts of it. Catholic does put a, a zap on your head, whether you're queer, you've had premarital sex, as most adult humans have or you're having postmarital sex but not with your spouse uh it really can fuck you up and so many of us wind up defining ourselves kind of in opposition to that you know you know we react to that script um and i found pulling away from catholicism really shaped me in positive ways i was surprised reading your book how catholic your family was i really thought that i had the most catholic family <laughs> In Illinois, but no, you know, my dad was a deacon. My mom was a lay minister. I went to a seminary for high school. Right. Uh, I thought we were the Catholicest Catholics <laughs> that ever Catholic. We all got confirmed. Um, but boy, you uh, you beat us. Uh, the, the Esposito family out there in the suburbs managed to out-Catholic my dad, which uh, kind of shocks me. Now, before we go, there's two things I want to ask you about. Can we talk about Nate for a second? Oh, yeah, Definitely captain of the football team with the ripped body that was entirely wasted on you for years (laughs) i'm reading this story you're going through the motions sucking his dick and i'm like girl let me (laughs) yeah i mean you know look i can still appreciate i don't want you to think his body was unappreciated (laughs) you know like i still think i can still appreciate the body of a beautiful man um like anybody in like for instance the savage slash Miller household. You know, there are beautiful bodies there to to <laughs> behold. Um, but I think it that I think I have so wondered about some of the characters in this book that, you know, were real people in my life. A, f- a friend I was particularly close to in high school. I have wondered so many times um, what this experience was like for her. And we are not in touch. And um, also mm-hmm. for my for this boyfriend that you're talking about, I have wondered what this experience was like for him. And I also think that like we don't talk a lot about how, you know, men that are cultured to have body shame or like sex shame. I, I actually think that in some ways maybe I was doing him a favor. You know, like I think we, we talk about young guys having, um, you know, like flooded with testosterone and like needing to put that energy somewhere. But I bet he was fucking terrified also, you know, terrified of pregnancy, terrified of um, doing something wrong. And so maybe in some ways I was like a really nice beard for him, you know, like I've thought about that a lot Mm -hmm. because he had to be getting something out of the fact that we weren't having sex too. 
that you were you were abstaining together yes. and being good Catholics yes. together, and it was kind of letting you off the hook. That the, the descriptions in the book of what it was like to make out with not just Nate, but some of the other guys you dated uh, at that stage of your life uh, are, are hilarious and touching. But again, as you know, a gay guy who will always have captain of the football team <laughs> fantasies that were never fulfilled, I'm a little <laughs> jealous of my lesbian friend Cameron Esposito's <laughs> two-year thing with the captain, two-year chastity play scene with the captain of the football Oh, Dan, team. it was four. It was four years. We were together for Oh my God, four, four years. years. <laughs> We were together for four years, but you know that like the, and this is a scene in the book, but it is also a photograph that I have that the greatest, the greatest moment of this relationship for me was when we had a famous couples dance at my high school and we went to this, we were, we were a very notable couple in my class and we went to this famous couples dance as each other. Like he dressed as uh, this sort of mascot for the football team and I dressed in his football uniform and so like I'm so sorry that you didn't get to date the captain of the football team but for me <laughs> my wish fulfillment did happen which is that I for one night only I got to be the captain of the football team like I, all I wanted was to put on those like football pants and go to this dance all of my friends were in full floor length gowns I was actually carrying like a pigskin under my arm <laughs> and I was jazzed out of my mind and your date was a girl. It was just your boyfriend pretending to be you. Yes. That's a almost a you know Catholic Church upbringing level zap on the head. Sometimes you don't know that you're setting yourself up for your fantasies, you know. And so I would just want to look back at little Cami Esposito and be like, "Great job! You did the best you could. <laughs> you know, like you really got as close. You flew as close to the lesbian sun as would have been possible in that moment in your life." <laughs> <laughs> So uh, one of the things I really enjoyed about the book is just how honest uh, you are in revealing. And I got to say, like, people don't have to dig up your bad teenage tweets uh, <laughs> to cancel you because they're kind of right here in the book. Yeah. Uh, there's an expression that was popular in your high school at the time that you weren't tweeting because Twitter wasn't a thing. Thank God who amongst us would survive if Twitter had been a thing when we were 14 years old. Uh, a lot of 14-year-olds are finding that out now. But there was this expression, it raped me. Yes. And you used it and all of your friends used it. Can you unpack that before you get canceled for it? Yeah, I'm I'm so glad that you brought that up. And I think you're right. There are a lot of things in this book that I I just read the audio book last week. And rereading it, I was like, oh, my God, I wonder. I wonder uh, what people are going to think of some of the things that I uh, – uh, uh, I tease. People are going to be fine yeah. with it. Like if somebody <laughs> dug this up, they would wave it around like a bloody shirt. But the fact that you're sharing this and you put it in context yeah. and you like take responsibility for it and, and flagellate yourself mm. for it at times. But what? how oh. did that expression in a Catholic school become right. ubiquitous? So, you know, this is around the same time that like that's gay – um, was thrown around, I mean, constantly in my high school. I said it. So that's gay, meaning like that's negative and shitty, you know, garbage, whatever it is. And then um, it raped me was really talking about it could be like usually it was about a test or like like your driver's test, but a test at school um, and you doing badly on that and it having uh, power over you. And so you'd be like, oh, how was the test? Like, oh, totally raped me. And people said that constantly. And I think that, you know, the reason that that strikes me today is because 
again, like nobody at my school talked about things like having sex. Nobody talked about things like abortion. Nobody talked about contraception. So rape was – Or consent. You didn't have consent. comprehensive yeah. sex education that covered consent. Right. So rape was a thing that was so – you know, it would it would be like – it was like watching the movie Alien or Aliens. It was just like something from another planet. I actually think a lot of people still experience sexual assault this way. I talk about this in terms of stand-up a lot because whenever – you know, whenever that like perennial – sort of argument. I don't know if you've heard this. It, it's like, it's almost, a, it's as if it's in the news every year, there'll be like a, a straight cis dude is usually who it is. That is a comedian. That's a stand-up comic who tells a joke that is a, a rape joke with like a shitty punchline and it doesn't make any sense. And people get angry at him and he's like, but, but topics can't be off the table. And first of all, I agree with that. Topics can't be off the table. Every topic should be on the table, but you have to know what you're speaking about. And what I mean by that is, you know, in an audience of people, statistically, many people in that audience have had an experience with sexual assault. And that's also true at my high school. You know, many people there had an experience mm -hmm. with sexual assault. So I just think for that, it, using that word, it felt so only applicable to a test. <laughs> and and um, that's what happens when you have no sex ed. That's what happens when you have no concept of um, the world outside of what is written by some old dudes in Rome. You know, I really thought like everybody in the world is subscribing to the, <laughs> to the like laws of Catholicism. The book is Save Yourself by Cameron Esposito. It's coming out from Grand Central Publishing in March. Cameron, thank you so much. Yeah, Dan, I can't tell you how much it means to be on your show talking to you about writing a book about uh, queerness. I'm serious. <laughs> it's fucking awesome. Hey, Dan. I'm a 40-something monogamish married gay guy from the East Coast, and I'm calling because I've had something come up a few times in the past year with new partners that even though I've been having sex for more years than I want to count, um, I'd never encountered it until this year. And it's that I've had partners during sex reach out and sort of grab me by the throat like they're going to choke me. You know, I'm pretty GGG. Um, I, I do like to experiment with things. I'm not into choking. And I'm just curious if this is a thing where people just are choking each other now without consent. I feel like this is the sort of thing that the burden of the, 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 the question should be on the person who's doing the choking to maybe get consent and ask, you know, hey, is it okay if I choke you? But I, I don't feel like I should need to go into every sexual encounter at the beginning and say, hey, by the way, um, I don't like to be choked. So I'm just wondering, where where do you feel, or, or should I say, who do you feel has the responsibility in a case like this? Is it the person who's the choker saying, hey, I want to get your permission? Or is it on the person who's being choked to have to say, hey, I have a boundary here? Well, of course, the burden should be on the person doing the choking. You shouldn't just start choking someone during sex without inquiring before sex or inquiring during sex in a way that clearly indicates the person can agree to this or not agree to this, that you'd like to choke them. That said, you've had this experience now more than once where someone just busted this move and I don't like to point a finger at pornography and a lot of people like to pathologize pornography and porn viewers, but this does seem to be one thing that we can lay at the feet of the porn industrial complex. 
that it has kind of glamorized and popularized choking during sex and mainstreamed it and made it look like something everyone, particularly everyone who's getting fucked, everyone who's a bottom, whether they're a straight bottom or a gay bottom, enjoys. And that is a false impression. It's something that scares people, that panics people. If it's done wrong or too aggressively, you can injure someone, you can kill someone. Absolutely, the person who wants to choke someone during sex needs to get that person's consent in advance, unambiguously. But it has been your experience that people are just doing this without asking. And it's often the case the person doing this thinks they're doing it to please the partner that they're choking. And so they may bust this move on someone who endures it, puts up with it, hates it, who thinks, oh, they like choking, so I'm going to let them do this because I want to please them. And the person doing the choking is like, hey, they really like being choked or I assume they might like being choked, so I'm doing this for them. Oh, my God, people, use your words and you can avoid all of this messy choking bullshit. All that said, it should be on the choker to get consent. But – to protect yourself because you've now been in a few circumstances where someone just did this, you might want to say, even though you shouldn't have to say, you might want to say, you should say, look, I've had a couple experiences recently where somebody just started choking me during sex. I don't like being choked during sex, just so we're clear. Here are the things I do like. If you have any special requests, I'm down. I'm into them. I'm open. I'm GGG. But no choking, please. Advocate for yourself. You now know that maybe thanks to porn – and how ubiquitous choking is in this imagery is in porn, that this is a move that people feel empowered to bust during sex, just to bust out. So might be in your own best interest to opt out in advance, to speak up and say something while you can. Hi, Dan and the tech savvy at-risk youth. I am a bi-queer woman in my early 30s, and I am calling with a question about cum. I am dating someone who is significantly older than me. He is in his mid-40s, and generally I've dated people who are around my age. And he has really watery, runny cum. And I've never experienced that before. Um, like, so, like, really watery in that, like, if he comes on my stomach, like, if I move, it'll just, like, be dripping, running off of me. And, yeah, that's kind of novel to me. And the cum that I have been in contact with in the past has just been, like, thicker, like, more substantial, <laughs> for lack of a better word. So, yeah, I am not having an issue with it. I'm just more so curious. Is that something that happens with age or is that just, like, how much water you drink, or is that just a standard variation of semen that I have not experienced yet in all of the men that I've fucked in my life? Some guys have thick cum. Some guys have what appears to be a little bit of jelly in their cum. And some guys have very watery semen. It's a standard variation. That said, it can also be a symptom of low sperm count. It can be a symptom of a vitamin deficiency. If someone has very little zinc in their system, not getting zinc in their diet, it can lead to more watery semen. But if he's got a good and balanced and decent diet and maybe if he slips some zinc pills into his cornflakes and it persists, well, then it's just his cum. Uh, it doesn't necessarily correlate with age. Usually what happens with age is less volume, there being less semen, but it, the consistency doesn't really alter that much or that significantly with age. 
So probably just his spunk, the way his spunk works, the way his spunk has always worked. If you can find a way to ask him about it without it sounding like you're judging him or shaming him, like there's something wrong with his semen, he might even realize that compared to other men, his semen is a little thinner because he probably hasn't had a lot of opportunities to compare and contrast, probably hasn't had a lot of guys blow loads on his stomach at the same time that he was blowing a load on his own stomach to compare it to. So if you can find a way to ask him about it that doesn't sound shamey and I'm not sure if you could, I'm not sure if I could, you could inquire as to whether his semen has changed as he aged. But sounds like he's having orgasms. Sounds like you guys are having a good time sexually. Sounds like you need to keep a towel handy if you don't want his semen running off your stomach and onto your sheets before you can get to the shower. But otherwise, doesn't sound like anything really is necessarily wrong here. The low sperm count, not an issue if you're not trying to get pregnant. And uh, the zinc deficiency, if indeed it is that, something that dietary supplements can take care of. Start taking a multivitamin. Encourage him to do the same. See if the consistency of his spunk changes. If so, Yahtzee, problem solved. If not, wasn't a problem in the first place. Hi, Dan and the tech-savvy at-risk youth. I have a conundrum. I am dating this lovely man who is uncircumcised, and I don't have much experience in this area. He has a lovely penis, but there is just something about the foreskin that is perplexing to me while I am performing oral sex. And I just would love to have your tips about what would make a better experience for him. I am loath to admit that I don't have experience in this area, so I figured I would phone an expert. Well, I'm honored, I suppose, to be classed as an expert when it comes to blowing cut and uncut guys. But you know who's an expert on how your new boyfriend likes to be blown? Your new boyfriend. He is the one that you should speak to. But then you'll have to admit to him that you're a little at sea with the extra skin, skin that as an American you're probably not used to encountering. It's not a big mystery though. If I were to give you a tip, if you really didn't want to talk to him about not your discomfort, you'd celebrate his foreskin, you're into his dick, you like his dick, but just your unfamiliarity with it and you're not being sure exactly what it is to do. If I were going to give you a tip to work around that, when it comes to sucking an uncut guy's cock, you typically roll the foreskin back. You push it down the penis to expose the glands. And then you go to town. Then you suck on that dick. What's great about a foreskin on a penis when it comes to oral sex is that as all people who are experts on blowjobs as I am know, you want to mix some hand pumping action in with the cock sucking action. That it's not just getting your face fucked or your throat fucked. That if you are driving the blowjob, if you're in charge of the blowjob and most people are and should be, although there are times when it's hot to not have any control, to not be in charge of that blowjob. It's not just the mouth that's doing the work. It's also the hands. Maybe you have one hand wrapped around the balls and you're giving a little pressure and a little pull. And the other hand, in addition to your mouth going up and down the dick, is moving up and down the dick. With a cut dick, particularly if it's a tight circumcision, you need a lot of saliva so that there isn't friction between the skin of the hand and the skin of the penis. With the uncut dick, you get to move that skin up and down on the dick. It's a Basically, what people buy in sex shops, it's a sheath. It's a cock sheath. And you add that to the action. You add that to the stroking. Requires less saliva. Sometimes then requires less work. But it's really not a big mystery how to suck an uncut, natural, 
cock. And if you have any questions, if you're all confused about the way he likes to have his dick sucked, ask him. Some people with foreskins have very sensitive foreskins and they don't like a lot of jerking around or direct stimulation or there may be a particular part of their foreskin with a lot of nerve endings. It's very sensitive to pressure or touch or, or tongue action or sucking. And he can tell you that. And some guys with foreskins like a lot of pulling, they like a lot of action. And again, that guy with that particular foreskin can let you know if that works for him. There is nothing unsexy or incompetent. You're not telling someone you don't know what you're doing. If the first few times you're having sex with them, you ask for feedback. Same applies when you're going down on a woman. Ask for feedback about whether she likes direct clitoral stimulation with the tongue or the teeth or the lips, or she likes it around the clitoris, not directly on the clitoris, how much pressure she wants. And look up, look up into someone's eyes while you're sucking their dick or eating their pussy and say, is this working for you? Tell me what works for you. Does this feel good? Have that conversation. It's a really great way to get into some natural dirty talk during sex. And again, you will be conversing with the expert, the true expert on what feels good for that particular uncut penis. And that is, of course, the guy it is attached to. Hi, Dan in the tech. Straight early 30s man here from the Pacific Northwest. My question concerns sex after pregnancy. My wife and I have been together for 10 years and 11 months ago we had a child. And then in the last 11 months, we've had PIV sex four times. Just said that sex is uncomfortable after pregnancy and I'm on the bigger side, which makes it worse. Beyond the physical issues, she's indicated that she's also much less interested in sex. For example, she offered oral last month on the basis that she hadn't done it in a very long time. So I appreciate the sentiment. I consider this service sex. It definitely came off as service sex, which was a definite turnoff. At present, we have not had sex in three months. And I have historically been the initiator. So at present, I'm basically trapped sexless. My question is, do you have any advice to overcome the physical and emotional issues here? For the physical side, we've tried Lou, we've tried lots of things, but she still is just not into it. And I guess my other question is, long term, if she's not into sex, how would you suggest opening the relationship? I would allow her 100% to bang someone else um, if it meant starting her engine back up. And this is also in relation to my hearing of episode 695 with Dr. Wednesday Martin about women and their libidos. Dan, help. You say your wife's not into it. And from your call, it seems pretty clear that you define it, the it that she's not into, as PIV intercourse. And anything else, a blowjob, graciously given, a hand job, graciously offered, you regard as service sex, as some sort of consolation prize. Well, I don't think you're going to like my advice very much because to get back in a groove with your wife sexually – if PIV is uncomfortable for her right now in the wake of childbirth, and I'm sorry, everybody out there, guys, women with female partners who are carrying the baby, after someone pushes another human being out of her twat, it sometimes puts the twat out of commission for a long time. And the pressures of, particularly for wife, is breastfeeding, the, you know, the physical intimacy and pressures and stress and sleeplessness, it can really tank someone's libido. So if you decide to have a baby together – and you go into that with your eyes open, you have to accept that at least for the first year, and it hasn't even been a year yet since the birth of your child, caller, at least for the first year, you're going to be spending a lot of time jacking off on the couch in the middle of the night. That's what you signed up for. Four times you've had sex with your wife. PIV sex, which was uncomfortable for her, 
since she gave birth. That seems to me a not insignificant number of attempts, of tries, of indulgences on her part. Circling back to my point at the beginning, you define it as PIV intercourse. That is sex. That does seem to be how you define sex. It is what you are missing and you want to get back to. And the way to get back to that, and here's some more advice that you're not going to like, my original point that you're not going to like, is to not have a lot of PIV sex, is to take her vagina, which is probably still sore, out of the equation, to have outer course, to engage in mutual masturbation with your wife, to accept if she is into giving you a blowjob, that not as a consolation prize, but as a route back to the intimacy that you would like to work your way back to. Center pleasure, center orgasms, center touch, and decenter PIV for now. And you'll get back there sooner than if you put your wife under a lot of pressure to get your big dick back up her vaginal canal before she's ready. And not just physically ready, but emotionally ready. And for her to feel emotionally ready, she needs to see that you aren't rushing her that you appreciate what she's just done, having a child with and for you, and that you will be patient. And that when you do get back to sex and intimacy, it will be about pleasure, shared pleasure, mutual pleasure, not just you banging away at her pussy with your big old dick until you blow your load. And in a long-term relationship, you've been together 10 years, that qualifies, that's long-term a little service sex will fall, like a little rain will fall. A little service sex will fall into all long-term relationships. And you can regard that as a turnoff because you don't want to be serviced because you want your partner to be into you and as excited about the sex that you're having as you are at that moment. Or you can regard it as a, a, a loving act. Service sex does not feel loving. If the person offering you service sex or the service hand job or the service blow job is impatient and annoyed. But if the service sex is offered to you, from a place of love and appreciation, if it comes from the same place of intimacy and connection that the hotter, more banging sex that you used to have before service sex came into the picture and service sex comes in and out of the picture, I think, in all long-term relationships, you should be willing to go there. You should be willing in those instances to be milked and not regarded as a consolation prize, but regarded as intimacy and connection and a way to rebuild your sexual connection with your wife. If you fold your arms across your chest and stomp out of the room when she, in a gracious, loving, upbeat way, offers you a blowjob, you're not going to get there. You're not going to rebuild your sexual connection your wife. That's not going to get your dick back in her pussy sooner. That's going to possibly result in you not getting your dick back into her pussy ever. And I don't know if now's the time to bring up opening the relationship just going to add this at the end, particularly if the reason you are suggesting opening the relationship is because you're anxious to get back to PIV sex with someone. Uh, you also mentioned you listened to Dr. Wednesday Martin. Maybe offering to open the relationship would revive her libido. Her libido isn't in the tank right now because she's bored necessarily. Her libido is in the tank right now because she is exhausted, just pushed another – recently pushed another human being out of her twat and is – She's breastfeeding and if she's not breastfeeding, she's exhausted. She's the parent, the mother of an infant. She's exhausted. I wouldn't bring up opening the relationship right now in that way, in the way that you suggest. Like maybe this will revive your interest in sex and it will get my dick into a vagina. Let's do it. But if you guys reconnect around 
mutual masturbation, around being intimate, holding each other, outer course, using toys. You can also reconnect around fantasy and you can roll out your fantasies and you can ask her to roll out her fantasies where instead of running your big dick up her vaginal canal, you two are running your mouths together. And if you explore fantasy, if you explore past experiences, things in the future you might like to do together, openness or a three-way or something else like that may come up naturally. Just like PIV, you don't want to rush it. I don't think when your child is not yet a year old, the conversation about openness is something you want to rush either. Okay, before we get to this week's response calls, what you guys think I could have or should have said, we're going to read your tweets. Cadessa Bacon tweets, thank you for making my boring receptionist job a lot more entertaining. Listening to Dan talk about butt sex makes being stuck at a desk all day so much better. Hashtag Savage Lovecast. My pleasure, Cadessa. Thank you for listening. Andrea tweets, hey, at Fake Dan Savage, the woman on episode 696 who can't stand her hubby when he's high Simply tell him to smoke as much as he wants, but not around you. Wait until you've gone to bed or out of the house. Problem solved. Not according to frequent and valued Lovecast commenter Rachel Conliffe, who tweets, Love the Savage Lovecast, but what was up with your advice to weed girl, Dan? She's just had a miscarriage. She wants quality time with her husband, and he's too doped up multiple nights a week to even be able to talk to her. The problem isn't pot it's in consideration. I think you may be right, Rachel Conliffe. I think I whiffed that one. If you want me to possibly read your tweet about the show on an upcoming episode, be sure to use the hashtag SavageLovecast. But I'm only going to read one tweet from you guys about how you can't kill a zombie by driving a stake through its heart. So make yours good. And now, the response calls. Hey, Dan. This is in response to the caller whose partner was wanting to smoke pot and get high. And she was just not a fan of how he acted and reacted to things while he was high. Uh, my partner is unable to smoke or do edibles or anything like that. So when I get high, I like to try and make it worth her while. So I like to do all the menial chores that I normally hate doing sober after I've gotten high. And then I'll make her some tea and we'll sit down and just relax on the couch. And I'll do things like, you know, rub her feet for a while, like way longer than I would when I'm sober. And then I'll rub her back and scratch her back and little head massage and all those things to just relax so that I can kind of engage with, you know, my hands, which I love doing when I'm high and she doesn't have to expect much of me, but I'm still putting in effort to the relationship and not taking away valuable time between the two of us. I'm calling in response to the caller who starts out by saying uh, that he has a question about women and that that might be far-fetched to ask you because you're a gay man. And then he says, so I've been dating this girl. You weren't dating a girl. I, Dan, can you please tell straight men, all men, to stop referring to the grown women they date as girls? They're not dating children. Do you ever hear grown women say, I was dating this boy? You never hear that. So stop calling us girls. And girl is not the equivalent to guy. I've heard that as a defense too. Guy refers to an adult girl refers to a child. So stop. All straight men, stop doing that. Please. It's the fucking worst and it's infantilizing. Yeah, this response is for the guy who's really worried about being a grower, not a shower. I got to tell you to just relax, man. I am a grower, not a shower. It's never been a conversation piece. It's never been something that I've added into the mix about what I'm about. And 
I think the problem is that you're putting sort of some sort of procedures ahead of the other. And people can feel that. They can know, okay, now I will touch her and then I will go down on her. And then according to the rules, she'll be ready to have sex with. It just doesn't work that way. The most important thing you have is to make sure that you, they know how glad you are to be with them. I mean, that you appreciate them. That, God damn, this is a beautiful woman. And touch them and don't rush and don't assume that it's like a turntable where you just got to rub the shit out of her clit and try to go down on her. Pay attention, relax, listen, touch her body, touch her legs, touch different parts of her. And don't make this whole, you've got the stink of too much worry on you. And that is unattractive. You have to relax. Take it easy. The grower not shower has nothing to fucking do with it. I promise you that. It doesn't. I don't know what kind of porn you're watching, but if you're watching porn, everything is fucking gigantic, and it's not a clown show out there. Everybody is pretty much like you and me. So relax, man. Relax. Good luck. And we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you want to record a question or comment for a future show, please give us a buzz. 206-302-2064. Or even better, better sound quality, use the voice memo app on your phone to record your question and email it to us at voicemail at savagelovecast.com. If you enjoy the Lovecast, you'll also enjoy Blabbermouth, the Strangers News and Review podcast hosted by Eli Sanders, out every Wednesday. And hey, Palm Sunday and Passover are coming right up, and nothing makes a better Palm Sunday or Passover gift than a Magnum subscription to the Savage Lovecast. You can subscribe or send someone a gift subscription at savagelovecast.com. And finally, my Dirty Little Porn Film Festival, Hump, is headed to Columbus, Ohio this weekend, and then on to New York City for a full week. Go to humpfilmfest.com to get tickets and find out where we're headed next. Follow Cameron Esposito on Twitter at Cameron Esposito. Follow me on Twitter at Fake Dan Savage. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian, and me and the tech savvy at Risk Youth and Nancy. I'll be back at you next week with an installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for downloading.